to the latest episode of the First Voice podcast, brought to you by First Voice Magazine, the official flagship magazine of the Federation of Small Businesses, and the go-to podcast for news, tips, and important information for small businesses. In this episode, uh, we will look at the impact of the ongoing energy crisis on small businesses, what it means for you, what steps you can take to minimize the impact, and where the crisis might go from here. And we will also uh, look at what options you might have around alternative energy supply, such as energy storage, and what that can do for your small business. To discuss these issues, I'm pleased to say I'm joined by two experts with their fingers right on the pulse of this topic. Claire Barrett is the consumer editor at the FT. Claire writes the weekly Serious Money column and presents the FT's Money Clinic podcast and Business Clinic video series. She frequently appears as a commentator across radio and TV, talking about the small business issues. Uh, meanwhile, Eddie McGoldrick is the director and co-founder of the Electric Storage Company, which helps individuals and firms sell any energy they generate and don't use back to the market and also helps with energy storage. And we'll get uh, Eddie to share a little bit more information about his company as we go through the discussion. Um, but let's dive straight into it. Thank you both for, for joining. Claire, I'll start with you here. There's a there's an awful lot being said about energy firms being in trouble and a potential energy shortage. So what exactly is the situation right now and what's causing it? Okay. So we've got some issues which are global, geopolitical, some that are more specific to Europe and some again that are more specific to the UK. So let's start with the with the bigger picture. Gas I mean, the price of gas is, is what's causing this crisis. But why is it going up? Well, demand for gas around the world is rising because it's being seen as the bridging fuel, if you like, as we transition to a greener economy. They, those dirty coal-powered coal power stations are coming offline. The renewables aren't coming online fast enough. Nuclear needs a lot of investment. So in the meantime, everybody wants to use gas. And notably, that includes Asia, where gas demand has soared 50% over the past decade. I mean, a staggering statistic um, in the FT yesterday that every year China connects up 15 million homes in coastal cities to the gas grid, which is like adding the equivalent of a Netherlands and a Belgium worth of demand every year. And we've just had a cold winter in China. Now, if it gets cold in China, then they want more gas, so the gas price soars in Europe, which is exactly what we've seen. But then another big global factor is, of course, the coronavirus. We're coming out of this period where power demand has been subdued. I mean, it didn't seem all that long ago when we were talking about the oil price going into negative territory. Well, of course, as demand opens up around the world, industry reopens, there is this great reopening effect um, of demand being um, seen. So you would expect that to have some reflection in the market, but it's coincided at the time of that happening. Obviously, accusations that Russia um, isn't supplying as much as it can to Europe. Russia obviously denies that that's the case, but it's currently negotiating over that Nordstrom 2 um, gas pipeline. And then let's look at the UK. So, our particular problem is that we are absolutely bottom of the charts in Europe when it comes to gas storage, which makes us more at the mercy of swings in prices because we didn't commit to um, renewing those um, storage facilities in the North Sea, the rough um, gas storage um, project a few years ago. That was very short-sighted. So it's a more immediate effect when there is a price spike like this 
in the UK than in other places. Now, in terms of how it's hitting businesses and consumers, this has become a political story. It's not just rising energy bills that are worrying people at home. It's rising energy bills that are threatening to shutter British businesses, intensive energy users, and, and hurt the economy. So a real nasty collection of problems that have all come at once. But as we transition to a greener economy, it's not going to be the last time that we see the impact of these spikes. Yeah, a number of factors uh, driving this, and you touched on it towards the end there. Um, the big question for, for small businesses will be, are my energy bills going to go up? Well, certainly, yes, is the answer. They are going to go up. They may not have gone up already if you have managed to lock in to um, a fixed price um, contract, as most businesses do. Um, I mean, it's, it's more normal for business users to use brokers to change suppliers maybe every couple of years to have a more long term approach to, to sourcing their energy. And if they are a big user of power, then it's more common again for businesses to try and hedge um, their power costs. But even that has been much harder to do um, in recent years because we've had very thin use, um, very strange things going on um, with prices in the energy market as a result. So it's been harder um, to, to get quotes for that. And then, of course, now we've got these big price fluctuations coming through. But I mean, many small businesses, if their supplier goes bust, they are finding immediately that although um, Ofgem, the power regulator, will guarantee to continue their supply and find a replacement supplier who will take them on as a customer, so there'll be no interruption, their bills potentially could double or treble um, overnight because there's no energy price cap like there is for consumers that gives them some kind of shield um, from the worst of this spot pricing. And of course, many of these energy suppliers, a lot of the customers, whether they're business or consumer customers who are on these advantageous fixed price deals, you know, it's costing them money um, to, to keep them. So they're desperate to, to make some profits. Um, so it's a really, really nasty combination and a huge shock for small businesses I've spoken to um, on LBC Radio who have had this happen and, and are suddenly facing an enormous cost on their bottom line when they've just got through COVID. Yeah, absolutely. It's going to come at a, a, a worse time. Eddie, I'll, I'll bring you in, if I may, on that. Um, it seems inconceivable that we have a cap for consumers, but not the same sort of protection for small businesses, doesn't it? Well, as we know from previous experience, there's an imbalance in market power between small businesses and large energy suppliers. I agree with Claire, uh, the energy suppliers don't see businesses like us or customers like us as attractive or profitable. Costs always travel down the value chain, but small businesses need to explore how to get off this potential escalator that, that's been set out very clearly here this morning, um, particularly because as the transition to net zero picks up pace, that will involve further costs. The other point I would make is that the recent fluctuations in supply and demand in energy, gas, as we've just discussed recently, and petrol are down to unpredicted events. China's cold winter and scare stories about petrol shortages, the outcome was the same. Customers suffering lack of availability and price hikes. That's not sustainable going forward. 
Yeah, indeed. And, and we've, we've heard a bit, you know, around um, energy firms going bust in the past few weeks. There have been a number of stories around that. Um, <clears throat> what happens, you know, a number of our small business members will be thinking, what happens if my energy firm goes bust, Claire? Will, will, will the lights go out on their business? Do they automatically transfer to another provider? How does that work? No, the lights will will not go out. I mean, Ofgem um, has the same protections in place when suppliers go bust for commercial um, customers as it does for domestic ones. So your supply will continue and the energy regulator has to then go and find you another provider. When they've done that, it's then up to you whether you want to continue with that provider or whether you want to switch away. As I was saying, because there is no energy price cap for um, business customers, people who have had the misfortune to see their supplier go bust or who have rolled off the end of a contract, which is um, perhaps a bit more common, the business energy providers tend to be a bit more robustly capitalised and, and hedged than some of the very small um, consumer energy companies. So we haven't had as much of a problem yet um, in this area. Um, people are finding that when they are um, switched to another provider or when they roll off a contract, those increases in prices can be huge because there is no um, protection from from a cap. But I mean, one organisation this morning has predicted that bills this winter for small businesses will more than double, an increase of 125% they're predicting as people roll off um, and go on to out-of-contract rates. Um, if you are in a position where you're trying to negotiate with your energy provider or you've been switched to a new one and want to try and get the best deal you can, it's worth telling them if you are what off-gem term a micro business, um, which is basically one with fewer than six employees um, and a limit on turnover, I think from memory of a couple of million pounds. You have a few more consumer type protections if you're classified as a micro business, they have greater obligations to offer you slightly more advantageous rates because they recognise um, at a governmental level that businesses that are that small are kind of more akin to um, a, a consumer contract. But in the main, the Federation for Small Businesses, I know for years, has been lobbying government on this point that small energy users have much more in common with consumers um, than with very large companies, but they lack these protections um, that, that consumers have enjoyed. But then you take a step back and you think, well, where is <laughs> where is the motion um, in the energy ocean going? And there is huge pressure from within the energy industry for ministers to scrap or scale back the energy price cap. We're going to see more small providers go bust, certainly as a result of it. And much of this is going to rest on how long this pricing crisis lasts for. Is it, as some believe, going to be a temporary thing as the economy gets going again? Or more like, is it going to be something that's never really going to go away as we transition to greener energy that's always going to be a threat hovering in the background? Yeah. And I think, um, you know, it sounds like if your energy provider goes goes bust you're a little bit hostage to the tariffs of <laughs> of the other energy providers they know that, that that you've got to transfer somewhere and so it stands to reason they they may well capitalize um on that and i guess that in terms of you know cost impacts and and financial impact on businesses 
presumably, Claire, we you know there's there's a potential that this is going to drive up uh, other costs. You know, down the supply chain, if my suppliers have got increased energy costs themselves, they're going to be looking to pass that on to their customers. That's me. Um, that's that. The, the, you know, the, the cost implications don't just stop at the energy prices, do they? No, of course not. And as Eddie was just saying, you know, costs do get passed down, and eventually. You know, who's who's at the end of the chain, the consumer. And we're already seeing that inflation is absolutely ripping away. We've had businesses from Next to Iceland to other supermarkets to Hotel Chocolat, the luxury chocolate people, saying that they're going to have to put prices up before Christmas. They see no other way. I mean, and that is a risky thing to do because the consumer at the moment coming out of, of COVID furlough ending, universal credit um, uplift being um, snatched out of people's hands. You know, people are very nervous about the future and they don't have huge amounts of, of, of disposable income. You know, even the return to the yeah. office, all of that forced spending, uh, forced saving rather that um, curbed our, our spending habits under under lockdown, you know, that that isn't um, a thing anymore. Petrol prices, you've mentioned, you know, there's, there's all kinds of of pressures that are coming in. And, you know, don't get me started on the wider supply chain. I mean, what an absolute mess. I've been yeah. listening intently to, you know, just the, the experiences of HGV drivers who have been talking on LBC and other radio stations in the past couple of weeks. And I think one story that really hasn't come out about what is causing that crisis, as well as the factors that we all know about, is IR35, um, you know, the employment um, mm-hmm. laws and tax laws that govern the way millions of workers in the so-called gig economy are are working. And there's been various polls that have said IR35 has been one reason that HDB drivers have decided to, to, to quit that industry. Now, it can be hard to get these issues into the mainstream because talking about tax, you always feel like you need to wrap cold towel um, around your head. But you know these are issues that are catching up with different areas of the business world. We've seen it with IT and contracting. We've seen it now with HDV drivers and the supply chain. And you have to think, well, what's next? Um, you know, millions of people are employed through umbrella companies. Again, you know, diluting their yeah. employment rights. It's saving big businesses money, but there is a cost to it. And that's what we're finding out. Yeah. Eddie, do you have a view on that sort of, you know, numerous cost implications for, for, for businesses? Uh, absolutely, and endorse what Claire is saying. My business costs are rising, and we do see suppliers exiting. So choice and competition are falling. Mm. That's very worrying. But we are also seeing innovation in supply models, so there are glimmers of light, and I'll talk about that later on, hopefully. Um, markets, when they, when they reset after a trauma, it often introduces scope for real innovation and progress. Um, a large number of suppliers all providing service based on a flawed business model. Mm. With what we've seen in the energy market results in carnage among those copycat suppliers, but that hasn't introduced innovation. If you look across at retail, what happens when a radical new model enters a market Amazon is decimating the high street. Mm. That's what disruption really looks like. Um, Claire's comment on costs and uh, transport and so on 
it is almost a perfect storm. I hate using that term, but you couldn't have concocted a worse situation post-COVID. All the disruption we have, and I'm sitting here in Northern Ireland, so don't go there. Yeah. Um, that sort of disruption, there is opportunity within that, but it, it's it's a scary time for small businesses. Yeah, it really is. I'm, I'm going to come to you in a moment, Eddie, to talk a little bit more, steer the conversation a bit to sort of alternatives and, and, and some of the other practical things that that small businesses and individuals can can do. But just before I do, Claire, I want to pick up on the sort of political angle of this. You know, we've seen some tension between the business secretary and the chancellor over this. Um, some talk about a potential bailout for companies, but, but but also maybe not. What's the latest on that? Can you give us a bit of a recap on what government might do to help? Sure. Well, you know, frankly, let's hope that um, let's hope that Boris Johnson's policy making is uh, better than his his oil paintings. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, the good news is that from his um, holiday getaway in, in Marbella, the Prime Minister has apparently communicated that he does want to um, support some kind of rescue package for those heavy industry users, you know, British steel makers, ceramics companies. I'm a big fan of um, British ceramics. I collect them at Bridgewater Pottery, as any of my followers on on Twitter and Instagram will know. So this has been a deep personal um, concern to me. But the paper mills, you know, they're another side um, of, of business that is really hurting. Um, Fertilizer companies, obviously, which the byproduct of CO2 is essential for the meat industry. And that really showed us that how these big suppliers and why we need to support them, because they feed into the smaller ones. I mean, one of my colleagues, Helen Thomas, wrote an excellent FT column this week talking about how if the paper mills stop production because they can't afford the power bills, is there eventually going to be a knock-on effect for medical supplies? Um, you know, with the packaging of drugs, food packaging, and then lo and behold, the ultimate crisis in the case of toilet rolls. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, because, I mean, I, I shouldn't, I shouldn't laugh, but because you know, this this really could could happen if we don't have those subsidies. So, the the latest um, at, at the time of, of, of speaking is that the government is considering a system of loans, not grants, which is kind of akin to yeah. the coronavirus support. Um, that we've seen in the past, that is out of step with other European countries who seem to be, you know, using grants to help heavy industries, notably um, steel production. Um, Stephen Barclay, the Treasury Minister, indicated on a radio broadcast this week that conditions would be attached. However, so it's a bit like the firms who took the furlough cash and then all of a sudden um, were paying out dividends um, and you know were distributing profits having benefited from largesse from, from the taxpayers. So we had a big backlash about that, people paying back um, the, the money because the terms and conditions didn't quite um, specify what wasn't, what wasn't allowed because of the speed with which the um, pandemic response um, was cooked up. But Stephen Barclay particularly mentioned in this interview, you know, if we are going to help companies, you know, have those companies pay dividends? Are they paying big bonuses? Is the taxpayer getting good value for money. So if we do see these loans to help the energy intensive users, and um, let's not forget the energy companies are also asking for help. I think they're probably less likely to get it from um, the, the tenor of what's been said. It could be cheaper for those companies, frankly, to raise equity from their shareholders rather than um, take up the terms um, of, of, of this government loan if it's going to impose restrictions on the capital within their business and 
and what they what they can what they can do with it. Yeah, Eddie, I want to steer the conversation a little bit to some of the sort of alternative approaches and some of the other practical things that that businesses and individuals um, can do. Why don't you give us a sort of quick pricey of your business and, and your role in that, uh, and then share a, a few thoughts around um, what they can do with things like energy storage. Okay, um, so the, my company is the electric storage company, and the clue is in the name. Um, my background is the electricity industry, and what I recognised was that there was scope for the fact that predictability and flexibility have real value in the energy market might allow us to bring cleaner, smarter, cheaper energy to users on a very broad base. And what I mean by that is if we install renewable sources, smart devices that can store energy and communicate data and pull that data back, that allows us to build a platform which we've built called Paris, which stands for Predictive Analytical Renewables Integration System. And what Paris does is answers four questions. If if I have a unit of electricity available in my home or business, should I use it now? Should I store it? Should I sell it back to the grid as a service? Or should I trade it in the electricity market? And by doing that, I'm maximizing the value for my business. But the key is about predictability and flexibility. So we, we describe ourselves as a data and services company a world away from the traditional supply model. But in terms of what small businesses can do now, the standard advice is to switch suppliers, and that is worth doing for the short term. But as small businesses and in our homes, we should also be switching sources of energy. We need to get access to cheaper, cleaner, smarter energy, as I've described, and this is emerging. And small businesses are not and should not be locked out from that innovation. Yeah, and I think, you know, the, there's, there's interesting advice, um, interesting guidance. One of the things that, that I, I guess one of the questions we get from small businesses a lot whenever mm-hmm. they're looking to you know move into a, a new form of supply or take advantage of a, an innovation or something like that is, yeah, but that's going to cost me money and it's going to take time and it's going to be difficult, isn't it? Is, is, is that the case or is that not the case with, um, with things like energy storage that you talk about there, Eddie? Yeah, so that, that, that's the traditional view of it. Um, I go back to when electricity was rolled out across the country. Uh, and when that happened, the industry built the asset of the network. But people in homes and small businesses didn't have the capital to avail of the technology. So what you had was the electricity industry created a financial model where people could actually get the use of electric kettles and electric ovens and uh, smoothing irons, all those wonderful technologies that people wanted, but they needed a financial instrument to allow them to access the technology because that was capital intensive. So that's where a financial model comes in and that's something that we're looking at because when people use those technologies and take advantage of the renewable energy, that opens up the sort of revenue streams that I mentioned earlier in terms of the market and services back to the grid. Um, and there's an angle here for small businesses that I'd like to explore for a moment. Um, the issue here is that 
often small businesses are tenants of properties. So let's look to landlords. By definition, they're in the business of capital assets for the long term. And those aspects open up scope for incentives, grants, loans for landlords to provide renewable energy to tenants as part of their offering. The long-term asset opens up scope for government support in many more ways, such as VAT treatment on renewable technologies, tax credits perhaps. So there's plenty of scope for innovation there. But the revolution in energy that is coming to us and is here right now is fundamental and we need to rethink it in terms of financial models and the balance of power within those markets. Yeah, that's brilliant. Thanks, Eddie, for that. That overview is really, really insightful. Claire, I want to end with a, a two-part question to you, if I may. Mm. Um, the first thing is, you know, this question of what should I do now? Should I switch provider? You know, what, what what's the next step I should take as a small business? I'd like to get your view on that. And the second part is, you know, where can we, where, where do small businesses go for advice and guidance on this? Is there somewhere that they can go to, to get the latest developments, to get insights into what they should be doing? Okay. Well, starting with, with your second question um, about where small businesses can go to get guidance on this, most small businesses I know will use an energy broker to buy their energy. They won't try and do things themselves online. They'll go to um, a, an external source to try and get to the best deals in in the market. Now, it may be that it's only the larger small businesses that, that, that do that, but certainly that's something that is worth investigating. Um, and anyone who is looking at the moment at price comparison sites, whether they are um, somebody who's you know freelancing, running a small business from home, so they're on a, a domestic contract, or somebody who is on a commercial contract, you know, it is it is a scary time. If you lock into a deal um, at the moment, you will be paying vastly more than you have done in the past. Now, if you're a business user, obviously the factors compelling you to 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 do so are going to be very different. I don't think that this crisis is going to be over anytime soon. We certainly know that in the domestic market, we're going to see another big price rise again in April next year when the energy price cap um, rises once more. But beyond that, maybe things will ease. So if you are a business looking to lock in to a price, then that will affect whether you consider doing a short-term fix or a longer-term one. But obviously, all of these pressures as we transition to to a greener economy. Some people are saying that this is the, the first big test of the transition um, to, to green energy. It's not just going to be about switching suppliers anymore to manage costs. That is one tool that has really been blunted. As Eddie says, you've got to look at how your business can is using power in the main. You know, what could be generated? Could you put solar powers or solar panels on your on your factory roof, you know, could you cut your power consumption? Could you use power um, more efficiently? There are lots of decisions that business leaders have to make. But then I'll just finish on the domestic customer because I know that lots of um, people who are running businesses from home, this is going to be an issue for them. If you go and switch to a fixed price deal at the moment, you will be paying over the odds. The best deals in the market for domestic energy companies are, ironically, the standard variable rate because it's those rates that are, that are affected by the off-gem price cap. 
if you sign up for a fixed rate or a green energy tariff, the price cap doesn't apply to them. So, for example, I looked at my own um, energy bills at home and thought, well, if I did switch to a one-year contract, what could I get? Um, I would be paying above the expected level of April's price cap. <laughs> Lo and behold, if I switch now onto a one-year fixed rate deal, so that basically yeah. guarantees that I will be um, overpaying for at least um, six months and then paying more than what the expected price cap is for the for the six months after that. So not a great deal um, for a consumer at all. Plus the terms and conditions that are being put into um, these deals. If I wanted to switch away within the year, I'd have to pay a fee um, of um, up to £100. Now, this is a really big point for commercial users as well. What is the terms and conditions of what you're signing up to? Will your balance be protected in the event of your provider going bust? Some are finding out to their cost um, that they're not. Will you be able to switch to another deal or will you be charged a penalty? I'm sure you probably will be charged a penalty if you're signing up to a deal right now, but how much will that penalty be? These are the things that you need to be looking at. And it's quite possible that an energy broker would be better placed um, to help you do that and, and understand the market more thoroughly. Yeah, that's great advice. And um, thanks to both of you, Claire and Eddie, for, for all of your insights uh, around this, this very, very complex issue that I know a lot of our audience are navigating uh, right at this moment. Um, thanks also to our audience for listening. Uh, please do remember to subscribe to the First Voice podcast to receive regular updates and guidance on the big issues affecting small businesses. And do please also remember that you can find a whole host of additional webinars, podcasts, and other content, including around lots of those issues that Claire talked about earlier on around IR35 and cyber protection and things like that on the First Voice website at firstvoice.fsb.org.uk. Many thanks for joining. Thank you.